I'm Billy. I'm Drew. And welcome to Pilot Club. So thanks for those who've come along for the ride so far. This is our second episode. We've got some really good TV shows to discuss with you this week. We're going to be going through another Apple TV Plus series, C. Um, we're going to be talking about Outer Banks, the Netflix series that's taken um, you know, Adolescence by Storm. And then we're going to have a new segment that we're calling Archive Corner. So once each episode, we're going to talk about a series that hasn't debuted recently so anything from the archives it could be a 1950s tv show it could be something that came out last year but just something that's not current and today we're going to be using outer banks to segue into the oc as our archive tv series so drew do you want to fill us in about some of the reasons we've you know we've decided to include this new segment yeah well i think it's a really interesting time to to revisit revisit the past revisit tv shows I think it's a really interesting time to revisit TV shows from the, the early aughts as well. Yeah. So we've just, just enough time has, has elapsed now that we're starting to get a sense of that shape, the shape of that decade. It's, it's, it's fashion, it's, it's mores, and, it, and I guess that critical distance that makes us realise, you know, what, what, was, what was that decade all about? Absolutely. And yeah, exactly. So we've just reached that generational cusp. So there was a time I remembered around 2008, 2009, when it seemed inconceivable that the 90s could ever be anything other than the present. Mm. And the same thing happened with the noughts or the noughties. Um, and we're reaching that point now, as you said, when it's starting to really kind of come into focus as a discrete period and style all of its own. And the OC, as we'll discuss, kind of epitomises a lot of that, doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we'll, we'll discuss it when we come to it. But I mean, the, the sense of fashion. Yep. Just the I music. Guess yeah, the direction. It, yep. it is. It is really like, uh, you know, in some ways, a wonderful period piece now. Yeah. And there's a, there's a kind of a pang of immediate recognition for anybody who was in late high school, early university during that era as well. Absolutely, absolutely. Another reason we, we discussed was for this archive corner was that during the pandemic and, you know, with so many cinemas kind of showing limited repertoires, a lot of people have fallen back upon the TV canon for their main source of entertainment. So That's right. So I think I read that, you know, the viewership of The Sopranos has gone up 200%. I know that in the early days of the pandemic, HBO made a sizable proportion of its back catalogue available for free. So there's this kind of new interest in the kind of the television canon back catalogue, I guess, which makes it interesting to talk about series in the past that aren't maybe don't have massive traction at the moment. And I think as well, I mean, there's there's a sort of gap in most people's social lives now, which really forces you to introspect. Mm. And I guess in a kind of I suppose Proustian way, think yep. about the past in a in a different way and 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 live it, relive it in certain ways as well. And um, I, th- I think maybe we've just entered a moment where there's a there's a major I suppose shift in the way we live mm. the way we work and uh yeah returning to those old shows is is yeah it's like returning to to an old friend and it's funny watching them now you know post pandemic or mid pandemic as well because you know th- there's these two levels of nostalgia like there's this nostalgia for the time period and for the style and the fashion but there's a kind of more immediate and pressing nostalgia for just situations where you could be around crowds, where yeah. you could socialise, like that's just added. That in some ways that's removed it to the past even more remotely, but also made it more comforting at the same time. Yeah, yeah, and I think that's one thing that we'll we'll talk about there. Yeah. Just the the sheer impossibility of some of the some of the social situations yeah. that that we see depicted there. And yeah, that just adds that sense of innocence. And yeah, okay. Well, let's move on to our first show for the week. So we're we're continuing on from last week's focus on the Apple TV Plus network. Um, and you're going to be 
talking us through this first show. The, the, the show we're doing is another classic Apple TV Plus single word, ideally monosyllabic title. C, <laughs> starring Jason Momoa. So yeah, so could lead to a lot it. of uh, sort of yeah, you know, who's on who's on first base type jokes with yep. you know C and what are you seeing and and so forth. But um, this is an interesting one. Mm. I think the the byline because both of us had a very different perception of it at the beginning and the end, didn't mm, we? I really think, yeah. shifted. Yeah, so C is a a fairly recent like twenty nineteen, but released early earlier this year. Sci fi dystopian um i suppose fantasy 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 fiction uh depiction of a world where people have lost the ability to see see (laughs) so this is the byline and and i suppose it stars the 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 incomparable jason momoa and this is the byline so we're we're introducing a few a few new categories to structure our discussion and one of our first categories is is rate the hook. Mm. So I'm going to, I suppose, give the pitch mm. to Billy, and I want him to tell me how he rates this hook. So this is the hook. In a future where humankind has lost the ability to see and is forced to interact in new ways, a set of twins with sight is born, challenging the status quo. Billy, rate that hook. So I'm going to give that hook a 7 out of 10, and I think the reason is that films that focus on blindness or on sight impairment can go one or two ways or, yeah. or tv series i should say as well sometimes they can be pretty exploitative pretty schlocky and can use the sight impairment just as a, a kind of crutch for not having in lieu of any narrative premise so when you when you're describing this um this whole this whole blindness yep. um subgenre, like what are you talking about what, what one of the shows have you seen so i guess this like conceit? i guess like a well i guess in terms of public perception of film like blindness okay. um the fernando murray film divided audiences that way so some people saw it like some people saw the film as embodying that more exploitative um focus on sight impairment whereas others saw it as being an instance of what i think is is the other way a film about blindness or sight impairment can go which is to do really innovative and visual things around that so given that film and television are visual media when you have a film or television series that focuses on characters who can't see or whose see, you know, sight is impaired, it can often force the director to do really interesting things to either displace sight or to translate sight into other senses in a really heightened way. So I guess it's a 7 out of 10 just because I was unsure which way this series would go. Would it be a series that would use blindness or sight impairment as a gimmick or is it a series that would do something kind of really interesting stylistically or narratively and something really compassionate around it as well. And I think we both kind of felt it was the latter by the end, didn't we? Well, it's it's a show that that feels like it is being designed by an elaborate algorithm yep. that puts Jason Momoa... To start in, off with, definitely. Yeah, absolutely. In his, in his, I suppose, iconic coming out role, which was the, which was the um, Carl Drogo... If I'm, if I'm remembering correctly. And we, don't, sh- we don't have a research department yet. Yep. Um, and the show the show is very redolent of Game of Thrones to start off with, yes. right? It's got similar imagery, similar atmosphere, similar visual style. So yes. it starts off as feeling a little bit like Game of Thrones with this added uh, yes. element of all the characters being blind. With the, I think a, a tad a side sprinkling of, of Hunger Games. Yep, definitely. It definitely reminded me yep. of you know, those burnt out, bombed out 
urban areas mixed with the sort of rural hinterland yep. that felt very reminiscent of the the districts in definitely in the Hunger Games. Definitely. So this feels like a, a bit of a, a sort of mutant combination yep. of the Hunger Games and Game of Thrones. Mm. And casting Jason Momoa is clearly you know it's signalling to the audience that if you did like Game of Thrones, then look. This is all Carl Drogo all the time. Yep. And this is something that we've said about some of the Apple TV Plus series, right? Like they take like formula that have worked on other platforms and kind of double down on them. Or yeah. kind of offer an intensified, you know, Apple-centric version of them. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So in terms of, um, I suppose, the, the Carl Drogo archetype, and from Game of Thrones, are, are you in on that? Were you a fan of Carl Drogo? A lot of people um, felt like they were extremely upset at how how abbreviated his story arc was in in Game of Thrones. Did you want to see more? That's a really interesting one, isn't it? Because he was so charismatic and so striking in the scenes where he did appear. You wonder though whether he would have had the same longevity just because he effectively played a caricature. Yeah, or he wasn't speaking English. Yeah, that's true. And also his his body and his stature were such a big part of it. So, yeah, it's interesting. Like, I wonder if in Game of Thrones we saw just enough of him like that it was tantalizing and you wanted more of his character but actually if you'd seen more it could have demystified him and it might not have sustained it yeah. whereas this is a different kind of challenge right i mean he he is the protagonist mm. he's front and center and in a way it the blindness conceit probably works just in so far as he works best as a presence when he's very embodied when his body is first mm. and foremost so to have mm. have him as this kind of blind yet you know very muscular and strong body works to his strengths and it means that as a blind character he's using his body all the time he's very tactile it's very visceral so it's it's good casting in that respect i think yeah absolutely so to go into a little bit more detail about the plot this takes place in a in a world where people have lost the ability to see and i believe it's it's a virus that's Mm. caused this that's caused this blindness it felt eerily prescient to be watching it during the pandemic yes. there's, there's a lot of discussion it it takes place like two or three hundred years after a major virus hit so there was something quite eerie about watching it right yeah. now and it does have quite a i think a neat reveal um a gradual reveal of the world mm. it starts in very tight focus mm. just with jace momoa whose character name i, I don't know whether it's ever identified sp- i can't explicitly. remember yeah. yeah with his with him and his i suppose little tribe in some mm. ways or band of or party, and you think this? Well, maybe this is a, maybe this is a throwback to some sort of sci-fi, mm. um, where you know there it doesn't have the trappings of Western civilization. And then mm. and then gradually and incrementally, it it, it uh, pulls out in mm. some ways, and you do see, I guess, some glimpses of a larger world and some bombed-out urban areas. And, and that world building is really incredible, isn't it? Like it, I remember something we said that works really well and works really well with the blindness motif too. Is that it? It starts in a very compressed, confined area, and you can't, it's like a bit of an immediate race opening. You're thrown into the middle of a conflict that seems very local and very specific, and then gradually the scope expands out, giving a little bit more information about the world each time, but still leaving so much that's tantalising. And, and it, it traces, without giving too much around the plot, it traces a progression of a journey, doesn't it? Yes, so we start yeah. in one spot, this blind community, they flee, and as they gradually move through the landscape, we begin to discover a little bit more about the world. Yes, and I think what was interesting about this was the, I suppose the the transition, the attitude in terms of attitude that we both had towards the mm. show. Um, I I felt we did watch this one together, and um, at the beginning, I, I felt like you were a hard out, like you were you were barely watching it. And I think you were, the way it foreshadowed um, violence really. 
Well, um, I think I, I suppose I think I thought it alienated was, you at the beginning. I think I thought it was just going to be, I guess, a certain kind of television which just focuses on tribal dynamics, primitive masculinity, kind of like atavistic communities and uh, ultra violence. Yeah, oh. but 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 I don't mind ultra. Well, I'll come back to that in a moment. But <laughs> I just thought it would be that very kind of one note, sullen, solemn you know, primitive masculinity. But actually, as the series expands out, it becomes really lyrical and really ingenious. In terms of the ultraviolence, um, something you'll you listen to the podcast or probably learn about me is I'm not great with eye violence. <laughs> Any, anything to do with eyes, I I can't really deal with. I, I, it took me a long time to watch Clockwork Orange just because of that eye scene. So yeah. there, there is this, a bit of... It quite... feels like there'll be lots of, there'll be lots of uh, eye, eye violence yes. here. And, and precisely <laughs> along with that motif on blindness. Right? I can so, imagine ripping, gouging yep. the, the eye and eye-related eye area. And, I think and, it's and also be because... Feature quite prominently. Exactly. And you're so aware of the eye as a part of the body. Um, just because the characters aren't looking through their eyes, you're always looking at the eye as an object. Yes. So you, you're very yes. aware of it viscerally, and, and foregrounded. Think, and I think also because they appear to have lost the ability to use weapons like, yep. um, like I suppose, automated Firearms. weapons. Firearms. Yeah, so... There's a lot of pointy things. <laughs> there are. There are. <laughs> that is, I suppose, the thematic of this really is a sharp object yep. directed at, at an eye that yeah. might or might not be functioning. This is what so. we. This is what me and, me and Drew call a blanket territory for me, where I have a blanket over my head during really violent bits and... Um, it's just, it's, I have to kind of... It was, it was on for most of that first 20 minutes. That first scene, I, just, I felt something was going to happen. But it's funny, isn't it? Because, I mean, you know, the, the, the violence I can deal with, but I just thought it was going to be a very, you know, like revanchist, solemn, macho kind of series. But actually, it, it, it opens up, again, without giving too much away, that this blind community have to flee the powers that be and make their way across a landscape. And then it almost has, like, the ingenuity of an action film, doesn't it? Is they're, yeah. they're navigating rivers, waterfalls. I think the real litmus test for this was whether how elegantly they were going to integrate that that blindness conceit into into the action and to the really. la- and the landscape and, and the landscape. Yeah. And I think the real transitional scene in this in this pilot is beyond the immediate first battle scene where there was some pretty gimmicky uses of that blindness That's- conceit. There was a scene where they had to cross a bridge. Yeah, I've, yes. And they weren't even aware that it was there, or they. It, it literally seemed unimaginable that mm. there could have even been a bridge there. So mm. there was an incredible scene where the, the characters, or the troop of characters in fleeing a marauding band of uh, raiders, had to cross this bridge across an enormous chasm. And it was a pretty rickety bridge. Yep. And, uh, might have been lined with bells or something. Yep. And it gave that sense of that kind of architecture of, yeah, and of I, a space for a for someone who, who was visually impaired. Absolutely. And for me, that was a point at which I realised how radically the conceit was going to change what an action and, and chase sequence looked like. Because yes. the whole thing is effectively a chase sequence. So you have this great scene where the blind community have crossed uh, halfway across the bridge. Their pursuers, who are also blind, arrive at the bridge. So the two characters are so close to each other... Um, and the space is so dramatic, but the whole thing takes place through sound. And just building on that, something else I, I found kind of mind-blowing about the way the series dealt with the blindness angle was, I mean, by way of analogy, you know, as a teacher, a text you often teaches The Giver by Lois Lowry. Yes, it, it felt it, like quite reminiscent It's of quite that. reminiscent. Yeah. And I remember when I read that as a kid, I was blown away midway through the book when the character starts to register something weird in his immediate surroundings and you can't figure out what it is and then you gradually realise he's seeing colour. He's trying to articulate colour. So by analogy, these characters in, in C, 
they're living so long after this virus hit, like 200 years, mm. that they actually don't have any clear conception of what sight is. No, so, no. And they, they see sight as magic. So it's not like yeah. characters who have recently gone blind or live in a world where you know most people see. It's a yes. world where sight itself is not something that has been conceptualised for a long time. No, So no. it's really and interesting. And they've configured their whole communities around yep. their lack of vision. So it's not improvisation. It's quite well set up. Everyone... I suppose their 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 mass transit system are yep. ropes that are yep. that are uh, bedecked with with uh, bells. I suppose. Yeah, and in that sense, you know, I mean, not that a series always has to be, you know, um, like not that you know, a series can be can be difficult or challenging and still be good. But in terms of the ableism angle, it, it is it's a very empowered picture of. There's no sense of disability. No, like it's no. it's a world where a sense has simply vanished. Yes, everybody has coped and it's almost as if it never existed but yes. that in a way makes it more fascinating and, and to think, watch and that's what's so incredible about the bridge scene it's yes. like people who are discovering that damn bridge scene it's so good <laughs> it's so good they're, it's like they're discovering an extra type of sense perception yes. yeah. which in a very realistic sense so I, it's, yes. it's the, a, the, the analogy it's would be if, if in our world we discovered a, a sixth sense exactly a film by M. Night Shyamalan <laughs> like it's that's how it, yeah. so, it's, so it, the way it deals with it is really Interesting. It deals with sight in a very high con. It's high concept the yes. way it deals with it. Yeah. So in a lot of respects, it's a, it's a bit of a sort of Mad Max um, Fury Road type plot yes. where the Momoa character needs to shepherd his tribe and particularly these twins who appear to have gained the power of sight. Yes. So that's an important part yeah. of the premise, isn't it? There, there are sort two, of a messianic angle. Yes. Here. Yeah. There are two babies in it who are associated with the people who live in the city, the people who are pursuing Momoa's tribe who can see. And it's interesting when you watch a pilot that's effectively a sustained chase sequence. Yes, that's right, it's yeah. like, it begs the question, will the whole series be a sustained chase? Will this momentum continue? Into, it's it's, and, and it's intriguingly yeah. self-contained, isn't yeah. it? And I think that chase structure really suits the conceit, the site conceit. And you see there's a Absolutely. lot of that, that bridge scene is built on repeatedly, yep. including a couple of amazing, incredible scenes with the waterfall, yep. tracing the the source um, or the river stream to its source yeah and so it's traversing a landscape yeah, traversing but the landscape, a landscape which which you know spoilers but um, they're following someone who has already laid out the trail as well so there's a yeah. great sort of orienteering angle and it really gradually reveals mm. i suppose the world through that chase absolutely that chase dynamic in much the same i think fury road or That's the road a really warrior good analogy. is probably the the probably the best uh, the best kind of it's uh, a really good analogy template and, and again that's what's so intriguing about its its position as a pilot like if mad max fury road was a pilot yes how does the rest of the series look yes and i think this is quite elegant in in the way that it is a self-contained pilot we've got a beginning we've got a middle we've got a really discreet end and mm. the end does does foreshadow that uh, i suppose a like a homecoming mm. so i'd be very intrigued and mm. we haven't neither of us have continued watching but that's not to say we wouldn't continue watching. No, um, it's definitely it's, a series. I feel when I when the mood's right, I'm definitely going to come back to it. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. the The final or the end of the pilot really does foreshadow an intriguing possibility about mm. where this show is going to go. Absolutely, and how they whether the pilot will be exceptional in terms of that chase sequence, whether that I suppose that that persecution and fleeing there mm. is going to continue on. And you'd say like, you know, unlike, say, defending Jacob, family is unconditional. <laughs> this is a pilot that makes a really good case for itself. Yes. It, 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 it does what a good pilot should, which is give you, it, it invites you into the world, but also provides you with a self-contained spectacle that really works on its own terms. Yeah, absolutely. So another category that we're, we're introducing here is 
What did you learn? So, Billy, what did you learn from C? Okay, I, th- I think what I learned was, in a way related to what I've said there, that how much a pilot functions best when it almost works as a miniature film. So this is something that you know I noticed, I've noticed recently watching several kind of golden age TV shows again, like Big Love, The Sopranos, that a pilot... I mean, in many cases, pilots for these series like Curb Your Enthusiasm were made sometime before the first season. They were distinct from the first season. So a pilot should almost be a standalone thing rather than just the first part of a story. And I think what we've seen in some of the other shows we've watched recently is the opposite, where the pilot is almost gives nothing away. Mm. How about you? What do you think you learned from it? I think I learned that, yeah, I think pilots in many respects need to make that case for themselves. And yep. And need to have a clear, clear structure, or need to yes. at least, at least challenge your expectations in some ways. And this was one of those shows that really, I, I thought it would be one thing, and yep. it really expanded the palette of what I thought the show might possibly be. And isn't it interesting to think back? You know, five, ten minutes in, we'd almost dismissed it, and then it completely de- exactly defying yeah. expectations. I think there might have almost been an element of watching it in a kind of comic or ironic yeah, way. Exactly. Uh, there's something about it that just seems so jerry jerry rigged and and maybe there's a lesson about it yeah maybe the lesson here too about how maybe how pilots look in the contemporary television landscape where they they start with something that seems generic and recognizable to bring you in to mm. legitimize it and then they go in an interesting direction so this started yeah. as game of thrones light mm. and that was the pull and that's in a way how it looked from the promotional material but then it took you in a different direction so maybe a lesson is if a series seems too familiar in the pilot or seems too generic in the opening just at least give the pilot a go and see if it does something interesting in the second or third act yeah i think that's right um so another another interesting category that we're introducing is category overrated underrated or just right mm. and i'd be very intrigued to know whether this show first has reached an audience or not my impression is that it doesn't seem that there's a lot of buzz around it i haven't heard many people um per se, recommending it to you. No, and this is an interesting one for the overrated and underrated canon, right? Because that that whole approach in some ways depends on a on a kind of a regular television schedule, whereas what's odd about the Apple TV Plus platform is it seems like everything has been released at once. Well, so, it was. It well, was. Yeah, it was. Safer possibly than, than the newer stuff. The newer stuff, yeah. So everything is, came out at once. Yeah, so, and all, those, all the pilots are actually free, free and accessible. It's, you need to pay... To, exactly. to get past the and as, pilot. As we said last week, one of the reasons we've started with the Apple TV Plus platform is because it is pilot-oriented, because they provide previews of the pilots. It's interesting, isn't it, because we discussed Servant last week, which we thought was fantastic, and this probably wasn't as good as that, but they're both series that just seem to be a part of the, the flux of Apple TV Plus. I haven't seen anything to suggest that they, they're perceived as standing out critically in any way. No, and so, in, in fact, in terms of overrated and underrated, there's... There seems to be an interesting split here between the popular ranking. So on, on IMDb, it's 7.6 out of 10. Mm. Rotten Tomatoes, the critical critical meter, 43%. And that's so inter- a, a really damning um, tomato meter there. That, that's, 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 a, that's rotten. Yeah, and that's interesting, isn't it? Because something I've noticed is that um, on Rotten Tomatoes, I mean, Rotten Tomatoes always tends to skew towards stuff that has, you know, cultural cachet, that has a kind of imprimatur of kind of highbrow culture. But especially for television, Rotten Tomatoes doesn't leave a lot of middle ground. So it either really inflates a series or it really deflates a series. And I can see that this is exactly the kind of series it would deflate just because it does have those generic trappings. It's not entirely original in the pilot, but 
you know, as we said, it builds towards something original and it builds towards something that's really kind of lyrical. So, yeah. I mean, I think it's always it's always telling, isn't it, too, when you have a series that has a really low critical rating and a really high popular rating, like it suggests that there's something about the series. We, we, we just, this is something for another time, but we've talked so much about the strange position of television critics, haven't we, where mm. you have this position where you're you're a position in a position of cultural authority as a television writer, but television is is still to some extent seen as lowbrow even in a quality television era so there's a, it seems to be a real suspicion and paranoia amongst television critics of anything that looks too much like popular culture yeah so there's often a very you get television series which have a very deflated critical reaction that i think are actually really incredible yes and just looking at the critical reviews here we see things like this show is hilarious but not in an intentional way and i think that's that's a, a pretty unkind I suppose it's a bad call. condemnation based on the premise. Yep. And unless there's a really precipitous decline mm. in episodes two, three, four, I think that's I think that's a little unfair yep. to this show because it, it does it does do something much more original than than it first lets on. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, so another category that we want to consider is is Billy, would you do this fast or would you do it slow? That's an interesting one. I. I guess the answer is slow just because I haven't come back to it since we watched it, but no. I'm, I'm still open to watching it. Yeah. So it's the kind of series, I think, when I have a lull in series... Like, I think for me personally, that kind of fantasy space is not addictive in the way that a series set in the contemporary world is addictive. No. And I think almost the, the pilot was so effective in a self-contained narrative arc way that you didn't feel really compelled to return to the second episode, but that's Absolutely. no... That's no uh, knock on the pilot at, Not all. at all in fact it's it's probably a compliment in some ways and that's and that's the nice thing about a series like this that you you can enjoy it in both ways you can enjoy it as a yeah. movie or you can enjoy, you can enjoy it, it fast as... or slow excellent okay so on to our second show this week we're going to be discussing the netflix phenomenon out of banks and this was a show that i heard so much about before watching it so my expectations were pretty high and was that the same for you drew well, I've heard about it from a couple of different sources. Okay. So obviously its its target market is, is the teenage demographic. And That's true. You hear about it spoken about in in sort of hushed tones of, of awe, but I've also been recommended it by a couple of my contemporaries, which was unusual. Mm. And they described it as a sort of um, boy's own adventure in some ways, but but combined with... I guess, I don't know, like a modern update of the OC. That was the way it was pitched to me. And that was definitely the impression we got when we watched it, wasn't it? So just to kind of give an outline of the plot, it's about a group of kids living in the Outer Banks in North Carolina. Is that where the Outer Banks is? I don't know. This is funny because I'm, I'm actually obsessed with the Outer Banks as a place, but I've realised I don't, don't know, know what state, state it's in. So those listening to the podcast, some of you will know that I'm, I'm really obsessed with American geography and American places. My partner is American. And, and somewhere I've been obsessed with for a long time is the Florida Keys. Yes. And a couple of years ago, I went to the Florida Keys and it was fantastic. It was the most evocative place I've ever been to in America. And my, my fascination has since turned on to the Outer Banks. So it's slightly embarrassing that I don't know what <laughs> state it's in. I'm actually just going to Google right now. And maybe, should we edit this out? Or let's, it, no, let's keep let's it. Let's leave it in. Let's leave it. So I, I want to say it is... And what sort of geolog- geographical feature is it? Geological feature is it? Is it uh, a yeah, so it's a, tombola? It, it, was, it was North Carolina. Yeah, is um, it a sandbank? Yeah, so 
it's, it's interesting. I think basically it's, it's an extended sand dune off the coast of North Carolina that in many places is only... It's vegetated, though, partly. Yeah, right? it is vegetated, yeah. yeah. So in some places... Concreted. Yes, in some... Asphalted. Yep, that's right. Although <laughs> in some places, like, the very tip of it is just a huge endless sand dune that stretches into the ocean. So I've, yeah. I've become particularly fascinated. Yeah. I'm, I'm, so do people drive on the Outer Banks? Yes, so there are two ways in which people drive on the Outer Banks. There's a road that goes the whole length along it, and then there's places where there's, like, a beach highway okay. so people can drive along the beach. So I'm really fascinated with marginal geographical spaces and in particular with the margins of marginal geographic spaces so <laughs> this has been an obsession for a long time it, it's probably worth having a look on the map it is quite extraordinary it's just this huge very thin sand dune that just stretches like a, out a giant barrier island yes like yeah. a giant barrier island but yeah. it, it stretches like a remarkably long way away from yeah. the coast and is one way and mm. for those um who've seen nights in rodanth the film with oh, Richard Gibbs. The Gibb. House with the Stilts? Yes, exactly. It's so a still house. It's a still house. Oh, so that's, my God. <laughs> that's, the, that's the landscape. So you have houses that are right on the beach. You have houses yeah. that are sometimes built on the beach. Everything is porous. It's so like sand. something from a Danielle Steele kind of antebellum type Exactly, novel, exactly. It's it's made for kind of romantic yeah. television drama and yeah. for exciting television drama. Yeah. So in, in some ways from the outset, yeah. that... That nexus of coming of age and adventure story yeah. sounded like the perfect uh, ingredient. And, and unusual geograph- geography or geology. Absolutely. So all yeah. that stuff from the outset sounded great, and especially because the series is named after the landscape. Yeah. I was like, the landscape is going to be front and centre. It yeah. really felt like that. Yeah. What did we feel? Instead, we felt that it was, it was interesting. So the first thing, and just to kind of give you a plot overview um, to just contextualise that convergence of, I guess, coming of age and adventure narratives. It's about a group of kids who live on the Outer Banks. They're, well, we'll talk about how they're presented in a bit because that was part of what we found irritating about the show. But they're bumming around during the summer yeah. and they come across a sunken boat. Yes. And it's about where the sunken boat leads them, I guess, over the rest of the pilot. So it's it's a coming of age series where the the kids who are ostensibly the marginal kids, the the dropouts. Yes, and so I guess in that sense, and they're the, they're the ones from the poorer background. They're they're from the wrong side of the the wrong side of the, the wrong side of the the banks. Exactly, the wrong side of the banks. <laughs> the north or the south? Which is the which is the the good side? I, I got the impression the series it was divided between the people who lived there permanently and the people who came in for the summer. Oh, okay, I got yes. so the kind of okay. itinerant banks. Yeah. Banksian, <laughs> and a bit like Ozark in that sense, which is divided between the people who live at the Lake of the Ozarks and the people who just come in for the summer. So yeah. you get the impression from the very beginning that these kids, they're, they're the true Banks residents. Yeah. They, they, a, they know the landscape. There's a bit of a class divide thing. Yep. And, and the, the main character um, is a bit of a kind of, I suppose, what, Huck Finn type character. Absolutely. A kind of wanderer, a kind of uh, free spirit, yep. if you will. And his free-spiritedness is mainly, I suppose, manifest in the show by him lying on a hammock uh, really photogenically. Yep. And he does that really well, I think. Like, he's, yeah. he, he, he does photogenic so well. He's great at posing. He's great at pouting. <laughs> he's great at posing. So, so something we found annoying about this show from the very outset is that you have these characters who are presented as these misfits, these outsiders, these kids in the wrong side of town. But aesthetically, in terms of their personalities... They're obviously the cool kids, right? Yes. They're obviously the in-group who like to give themselves... Like, yeah. Th- who have given themselves the cachet of being outsiders exactly. but are actually totally normcore. Yes, definitely. This is a show that wants you to root for the for the cool group. For and the bullies. Should, yeah, <laughs> for the bullies. And and they do bully a lot of people. They, they do. They bully adults. Yep. They bully police. Yep. Um, the police chief does give 
the main character a pretty stern dressing down. Yep. She's the most interesting character yep. in the show. And, and, and she's the voice of reason too. And, just, and I know that in 2020, talking about adolescents bullying police and police being the only <laughs> sympathetic characters probably sounds like a... a, a the take hasn't aged well. Yeah, yeah. It sounds a little, a little bit alt-righty, yeah. but this is how bad the show is. <laughs> this is how bad the show is. I mean, it just... It, it deals with a group of adolescents, I guess, who just continue to look as if they're posing. Yes. Like as if they're posing for a commercial, as if they're in the middle of creating an Instagram story. Yeah, well, as if that's, they're in the I middle think of, it's an Instagram could, aesthetic. If, if you could boil down the show, it, it, despite the fact it's it's situated in such an atmospheric and, I guess, geographically varied place, it really does, I guess, the way it's shot and the, the characters and the actors really render it all a really very one-dimensional, flat sort of tonally mm. homogenous Instagram type filter. Um, exactly. This so is, this it is has an, an like incredible tonal and like visual flatness to it. Absolutely. This is something we noticed right away. So we were expecting it. I was kind of hoping it would be a cognitive map of the yeah. Outer Banks with each episode set in a different part, or that it would at least use the landscape really well. And yeah, that, that has been done recently. So we were both, when we were watching it, we were both thinking about the recent film, The Peanut Butter Falcon, yeah. with Shia LaBeouf and... Um, What's Melanie Griffith's daughter's name uh, again? Dakota, Dakota Fanning. Dakota Johnson. Uh, Dakota Johnson. Dakota Johnson. Uh, the other Dakota. The other Dakota. The, the, <laughs> the South the Dakota. South. <laughs> the South Dakota. And, and, and that film's set throughout the, the Outer Banks. In fact, Shia LaBeouf's character has an Outer Banks hat on for most of it. And it makes really evocative use of this landscape, which is, it, I mean, it's a bit like the Everglades in that it's, it's really porous. There's mm. constant sand dunes. There's constant channels. Like, mm. It's a total mm. fluidity of water and land, that right? That's a real, a real Huck Finn type. Absolutely. Vibe. And the, the Outer Banks is a kind of, uh, I suppose, land-based, land-bound kind of Mississippi in some ways. Yeah. That they journey down. And there's a really great sense of, I guess, destination. and In the Peanut Butter Falcon. In the Peanut Butter Falcon. Yeah. Oh, so, oh, certainly not in this. Yeah. And <laughs> there's it, no sense of destination at all. And it just captures that, that landscape where you, you know, you're always poised halfway between, like, or midway between sky, sea, and land. Just yeah. Just that, that really fluid. Yeah. Whereas... I mean, yeah, we noticed, I mean, Outer Banks, like the colour, firstly, the colour palette is really monotone. So everything is shot in a warm Instagram-like filter, which which can really work. So there's mm. some there's some really great films that, are, that draw from Instagram. There are some really great TV series that draw from Instagram. Um, I'm thinking particularly about a film that I have momentarily forgotten the name of. I'm just looking up with Aubrey Plaza. What was that film, the Instagram? Oh, yes. Uh, yes. Elizabeth Olsen. Oh, yes. Um, something about... It's called Ingrid Goes West. So that, Ingrid Goes that's West, a film yes. which, which uses Instagram in a really interesting way. Like it's about someone who effectively Instagram stalks another woman in LA and it kind of presents LA through the sheen of Instagram. It's really interesting. Yeah. Well, this in, in many ways might be one of the first Instagram TV shows because yeah, that's true. the aesthetic is very Instagrammy, but there's also lots of discrete scenes that feel like they are shot with a handheld iPhone device almost as if it's kind of the Instagram story the Instagram type story exactly aesthetic. so yeah. yeah exactly so it it's this really strange tension between you know having to root for these characters as misfits and outsiders but also being subjected to one inane and obnoxious Instagram story after another and also you know as with the Instagram story everything feels slightly posed and slightly manicured so it, it detracts mm. from any real sense of yeah they, these, these characters are really uh, like I guess they spend their days loafing around. Yep. Do they go to school? I mean, they work, I suppose, on the But But if, if, even the loafing is not particularly atmospheric or immersive loafing. It yeah. feels like posed loafing. Yes. It's, it's that kind of, it's that conspicuous leisure yeah. of Instagram that yeah. that kind of, 
that highly stylized sense of having just been caught in a casual pose. Definitely. And I think partly the issue is is with the casting. And I think the lead is played by a, a fellow called Chaz Stokes. Ah, the now, Stokes, the Chaz Stokes cannon. <laughs> now, how many crowbars did you want to take to Chaz, <laughs> Chaz Stokes' face, Billy? He, I mean, he was just so, so bland and so insipid in the role. And, you know... <laughs> Many actors and actresses are good looking, but there's a certain kind of acting that comes from just subsisting on your looks. And th- again, this feels like that. Like it feels like it feels in some ways it feels more like a fashion shoot, doesn't it? Or it a does. photo shoot. I mean, something else on that note as well is, you know, not only does the Instagram filter detract from any real sense of space, but it also detracts from any real sense of time. And you need time for mm. suspense. So one of the really unusual things about the first episode is that there's. Um, a hurricane that sets all the action, the subsequent action in place. But there's none of the suspense you'd associate with the hurricane. So the build-up, the hurricane itself, the aftermath, it happens in such an oddly atemporal and distended way that it's almost like the hurricane just becomes a pretext for a series of even... like It's like disaster Instagram. Yeah. The, 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 the frenzy and the disaster just creates a series of slightly more stylized poses. And, you know, you know there's nothing... You know, we're big social media fans, so that's not a criticism of Instagram. But just in this particular series, to pair that that flat Instagram aesthetic with a with a narrative that depend that depends on propulsion, suspense, and immersion, it's it's a really awkward combination. Yeah, I don't I, think works. I think yeah, the Instagram the Instagram story has its has its time and place. So yep. I think it's it's well suited to a certain aesthetic, like that California LA aesthetic. Well, exactly. It's, it's it marries very neatly to that. And, and part of what I liked about Ingrid Goes, Goes West was the way in which it, it almost presented. Instagram LA as, mm. a, as a natural outgrowth aesthetically and ideologically of 70s LA. Yes, so it definitely. really, it presented that Instagram sun-kissed yeah. well, aesthetic. I think the, the Instagram aesthetic is, is, an, is an LA aesthetic that's yeah. extrapolated. Absolutely. But, but this this is said in a, in a different part of the US that should be a maybe not a steamy southern gothic type story, but at least, at least something with a really, I guess, overwhelming sense of atmosphere and sense of sense of space and 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 you feel like given that the title of the series is outer banks like it does seem like that is what they're going for right so the the place is so and you know to its credit there is this quite interesting opening elaboration of the different parts of the outer banks and the characters are always referring to the outer banks and invoking the outer banks so it's clear that the series wants the place to be front and center but really Mm. it didn't i mean and that this is such a this one thing you'd say about the golden era of quality television is it did regional texture really well and that's obviously what this is trying to tap into you know in a more adolescent adventure register but i kind of came away from it with no no clear sense of place at all no clear sense about which which also detracts from the suspense because the story without giving too much away is very or is meant to be very intimately associated with that particular landscape well it's a pretty it's a pretty rudimentary sort of narrative hook here yep uh, some kids one of whom has lost his father yep. discover a wreck yep. with a with a treasure map mm. i mean this is like famous five type yep. stuff so it's five, like, five go to Outer Banks. <laughs> five go to Outer Banks. It's not revolutionary stuff. I feel like Enid Blyton wouldn't really have fit in in North Carolina. <laughs> or maybe she would have. <laughs> red, well, maybe. Red, red state. <laughs> With Instagram, you yep. know, the right filter maybe. Yep, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but um, no, I think there's a, there's a pretty a pretty primitive plot mm. and pretty primitive plot mechanics. Mm. And it feels really underridden, I think, and the relationship between the characters doesn't really doesn't really sparkle does it no and look sometimes i find a tv series, especially a tv series with adolescent characters that's underwritten can work really well um if it embraces either the absurdity of the premise or 
takes that kind of underwritten screenplay into a, in a melodramatic direction like a soap opera. So a show this reminded me quite a bit of was Revenge. Yes. Just the way it was shot, the way in which the plot unfolded. But Revenge has a really intense, like hyperbolized, melodramatic style, whereas here it's just that... It was too cool to be to be soapy, really. Yeah, too cool to be soapy and too casual to be soapy. It like was, Soapiness yeah. has to have an intensity behind it, whereas whenever the suspense ratchets up everyone just tumbles back into a you know into a pose so it doesn't really feel like there's that much at stake in terms of what's happening narratively and and there is no it doesn't have the sense of time and place that's needed at least for the kind of really the classical suspense it's going for mm. and i think what we what we noticed and what we i suppose it, it rang a vague bell and the bell it rang was the oc and that's why we're re- revisiting the oc from the archive here. So, and so this is our first, this is our first archive this corner, is, isn't it? This is it? our so first archive debut corner. Debut archive corner. And I think it's it's a great segue because mm. we noticed that the, the structure of Outer Banks, almost scene by scene, blow by blow, reproduced that classic early noughties OC. And we should we should probably structure. say here we should probably say too that even though you know, we're very nostalgic for the early noughties. Neither of us have a really huge investment in the OCs. So this is not. With no. make clear, this, this is not us being like twenty years ago. It was all better. I think we were we were like a lot of people. I mean, we had a pretty distinctive memory of maybe the the pilot or mm. the first the first season. I I don't believe I watched past the first season. Maybe not even past the first half of the first season. And I think this is a characteristic of these early noughties television shows too, right? Where they're often only available on cable or on free-to-air television at odd times, and the seasons are really long. Yes. So you'd, you'd have, you know, even with shows like The Sopranos, you'd have this quite impressionistic experience of it, an episode here, an episode there, which now seems kind of inconceivable post-DVD era, but at the time was how most people watch television, right? So I... I, I'm, Absolutely. I think I'll, there were two, two surprising things that we yeah. noticed about the OC. Firstly, that it only lasted, I think it was about three or four yeah. seasons, which seemed like... For, for its cultural impact, uh, seemed quite quite short, quite abbreviated. But then we looked at the actual length of each season. Each season, thirty episodes. And this is and this is such a characteristic of those shows, right? Like shows like Twenty Four, Alias. I guess you know just just before or as during this this kind of third wave of golden age television was peaking, like this interest in narrative ingenuity that would stretch seasons out to sometimes half a year. Yeah, like well, I imagine this would have been six months, broadcast. It was, seven months. It was broadcast weekly, I'm pretty sure. So that would have, yeah, it would have been six months. And that's why, as with so many shows of that era, I was aware of being immersed in them as part of my general, the general ambience of that time. But actually, I don't remember watching a lot of it discreetly. And I certainly don't remember watching it sequentially. Yeah, so if, if you need a, a brief uh, reminder of what happened in the OC... So the OC charts the story of Ryan Atwood, played by Ben McKenzie. And I should say from the outset, I'm a Ryan man. <laughs> you stand for Ryan? I stand for Ryan, yeah, I stand for Ryan. <laughs> well, or do you stand for the white tank top? Well, well, maybe it's a combination of both. <laughs> certainly, certainly at the time, that white <laughs> the white tank top was omnipresent in the early 2000s. And, and that, and that, and that, and that uh, necklace, that, the necklace white tank, tank top uh, combo. That, was that, a, that, that style was de rigueur in the early 2000s. <laughs> But yeah, in terms of Seth and Ryan, I'm, I'm Team Ryan. <laughs> so so Ryan gets involved um, as a result of a run-in with the law, and he, he gets, in a certain way, I mean, it's a pretty absurd premise, he gets in some ways adopted by his lawyer. And, and it's funny, it was funny, yeah, re-watching the pilot, I mean... You think that would be some sort of, you know, uh, breach of a professional code in some ways, yeah. adopting your client? And, and the pilot, it kind of 
and something I kind of like about it, especially in comparison to a lot of contemporary high concept television, it makes no effort to make the premise seem any less absurd than it is. Mm. So it literally opens with the lawyer, the Peter Gallagher character, you know, appointed as, I guess, Ryan's um, public attorney, yeah. and then just saying, well, how about you come back and live with me <laughs> and, my, and my family in our super rich house? Apparently this happened in the noughties. Yeah, yeah it, was, you know, it was another time. It was another time. <laughs> so the, the, the premise is absolutely as, as absurd as you'd expect it to be, especially since all the teenagers are played by 30-year-olds. <laughs> <laughs> and, I, yeah, I don't know whether this was... This is something we grew out of. I mean, I know Dawson's Creek was very notorious for this. I mean, I think by the time Dawson graduated high school, he was he was pushing forty. Yeah, yeah. I mean, <laughs> his it, hairline was receding. I'm pretty sure he certainly wasn't at university in varsity blues either. No. <laughs> so Classic. that is that is quite self evident. And maybe so, maybe it's one of the things when you're that age. You know, I remember when I was at school, there were some teachers who could have been 20 or 50 and I wouldn't have known. So maybe it's when you're watching a television show as a young adult or an adolescent, you're you don't, not aware of it. You, you don't have a good read on age. Whereas in retrospect, I mean, the kids look almost as old as the parents. They do. They do. Well, that is one. Yeah. One very striking thing was that the the, the parents are quite attractive in, yeah. in their own right and feel like maybe they had these, these kids when they were themselves teenagers. Yeah, like, exactly. How does, it, how does it quite work? The, the, the generational gap doesn't feel quite right, does it? No, and it, it, almost feels like, it almost feels like parents and children are converging on a kind of eternal adolescence <laughs> yeah. in the series. <laughs> so Ryan gets adopted by... I mean, is he adopted? What happened? Well, I don't know about the legalities. <laughs> he, just, he, just, he just like goes to live with his lawyer for four seasons, three seasons. <laughs> for 120 episodes. For 120 episodes. I'm pretty sure that's that's what happens. And I don't exactly, I don't know what happens at the end. of Does he does he kill him and assume his identity? That would be awesome. <laughs> but he goes and lives with the, uh, the, the wealthy... The night after. The, the wealthy upper crust... In the in the in the community of Orange County. Now, this yep. I think was a was a show that discovered Orange County and as a discrete as a discrete place and a discrete and I, phenomenon. I have to admit, not until many years later did I realise that OC stood for Orange County. I thought it stood for Opportunity Class. So I thought <laughs> I thought the whole series, you know, for a long time, I was like, oh, there must be some gifted education element here. I'm not seeing. So, yeah, I, that that took me a while to cotton onto that one. But I think since then, I, I'm not sure how they appeared chronologically whether the hills predated this or i think i think the hills is, is a bit after this bit after yeah that, but that explores i think and oh, that's hollywood hills is that yeah i guess there's a film orange county starring is, colin hanks there is maybe laguna beach maybe that was yes. one of those uh scripted reality shows that exactly. came in its wake but it, it clearly it launched it's a show that launched a thousand orange county yeah, and and that's really orange in, county means that's really interesting that you say that because definitely the shows although it's a fictional show the show's vision of luxury, of kind of California, LA luxury, I think you can see percolating through reality television. Yes, the, you know, the Real Housewives for is the there, last fifteen. But as you said, Laguna Beach, Hills, like it, it traffics in a certain kind of suburban LA, California luxury that yes. it became really influential. Yes, and I think one thing that's incredible on the rewatch as well is seeing how Ryan is positioned mm. in relation to the audience, yep. especially in relation to I imagine their their target audience, which is young. Uh, adolescent girls because th- there's something that the camera holds itself on his facial expressions mm. to an almost surreal uh, to a surreal extent. I remember you said it was almost like watching a kabuki actor. Like there, there, <laughs> there are long series, there are long scenes where he almost appears to be performing in mime. Uh, clearly, he's got some eyeliner on and, and yeah. extended eyelashes, and, and, and he'll he'll modulate from like uh, through about ten expressions in one go. Like, and he, oh, he certainly he. he 
it was, was it would have like, been it was like the the director I think they used the analogy the director said Ryan you've got to make love to the camera in yeah. every single scene you're in it would definitely have been memed at the time yeah. right like it's well, every every I shot I think it might have and it has been subsequently yeah, but at the time it might have been pre meme I guess yeah proto meme proto meme certainly. Yeah, it's strange because everyone else in the series is relatively naturalistic. And then you're cut to Ryan gazing off in the distance and shifting the direction of his gaze about four or five times. Yeah, but this is not a criticism. No. This is, this is an immensely enjoyable show all and, around. And compared to OC, this is a show, I think, which compared to, oh, sorry, compared to Outer Banks, which completely accepts and embraces the melodramatic absurdity of its premise. Like, everything in it is slightly heightened. Yes. The spaces, the character, the narrative. Yes. And, and there's that there's that ebullience, that sense of just revelling in the, the, the inanity of a television series, which is yeah. so addictive and so artistically satisfying in its own way. Yes, and, and beat by beat, it's an incredibly entertaining show. Absolutely. And it, it gets... I mean, something else that's fascinating about the pilot, right, it gets all the major conflicts going right away. So I was amazed how much of everything I remembered about the series was already there, embedded and foreshadowed in the pilot. Mm. So it, it, it gets right in. Yeah, absolutely. So, so Ryan, is, Ryan is adopted and the pilot charts his, his adventures and misadventures in his new ado- adoptive family, I suppose is the shorthand. And I think one thing that's particularly interesting is subsequent to the pilot, it, it appears that Seth in particular yeah. really acquired his own fan base. Mm. But in the pilot, Seth is is constructed in quite a, quite a different way to how he sort of eventually, I guess, manifests his character. And this is one of those interesting things, isn't it? Because a pilot is often made considerably, a considerable amount of time before the TV series. So like Curb Your Enthusiasm, pilot made like a year before. Seinfeld, I think. Seinfeld, the, the Seinfeld, the Seinfeld Chronicles. Yeah. yeah. Some bits of it were quite unfamiliar, and especially the character of Seth, who here is is much more of a kind of nerdy figure and well he, he's almost played he's played so socially awkward yeah. that he's almost autistic it's a spectrum yeah it's he, like he's almost spectrum. been on the spectrum yeah. exactly so that's quite different to the kind of heartthrob he kind of becomes later on like Definitely. later on he and he becomes a bit of a, a witty sort of motor mouth in some ways exactly well. be, i mean he's he's already i suppose like foreshadowed that he's as some sort of genius but mm. He's not particularly eloquent in this, no. or socially well adjusted. And he spends most of his time playing video games, <laughs> sailing. Like he's not. But he's not social... socially adjusted. No, like, not like at all. Socially ill-adjusted in a kind of cute or nerdy way. No, he's just he's just weird and creepy as and, well. Like the you... way he he creeps on um, his crush, yeah, who's played by Ra- Rachel Bilson as Summer Roberts. Yeah, exactly. The, wonder- the wonderfully titled the Summer Roberts. <laughs> Rachel Bilson is Summer Roberts. <laughs> Yeah, and, and can we talk too about the house, like about how great the house is? Because remember, if, if we said that um, Outer Banks didn't have a really distinct sense of space, well, this is the opposite. Oh, so, yeah. so much of it about, I mean, it's, it's, it's fascinating, isn't it, how much, I mean, you think of The Sopranos, you think of Seinfeld, you know, I'm thinking of Ozark. It, it's amazing how much the right house yes. works for a television yes. series. And this house, the moment you see yes. it, I'm like, I'm in, baby. It's a big bay windows looking yeah. out into the bay. It's elevated. It's... Yeah, it seems to be in some exclusive housing estate that's perched on a hill overlooking both the county and the ocean. <laughs> and the house itself is on top of like a further peak. So you have to yes. drive up the garage into yes. the, up drive, the driveway. You, it takes you up a little hill to get there. Every part of the house looks out on the ocean. There's, you know, huge bay windows, outdoor swimming pool. Like it's mm. ultra, it's a little bit like the, some of the houses in Big Little Lies. Yeah, it's and, ult, and, ultra atmospheric. And it feels like it's part of a, a very closed, tight knit yep. Orange County community, quite an incestuous community, Absolutely. which has its own discrete. Uh, culture and subcultures and yeah. its own parties 
and its own high school hierarchy. I like that. And I like, I mean, I think the index of any good teen drama, adolescent drama, is if the relationships between the parents are interesting as well. Yeah. Like, and that, I mean, that's a classic John Hughes thing, right? Like in John Hughes' film, the adults are always good too, and as long as, as well as the adolescents. And the adults, the adults might even be the highlight of this, yeah. this pilot. Yeah, Particularly it. Peter Gallagher as Sandy Cohen. He's great. I mean, he, has, he can just choose scenery, can't he? He, he can. He's fantastic. He, can. he feels like he's a... He's an actor maybe transplanted, transplanted from something like The Young and the Restless. He has, he has a wonderful, expressive yeah. face from something like that. That's, that. that's a wonderful comment. Exactly. He, he, he bridges a cinematic sensibility and a soapy sensibility mm. in, in just the right way for this series. Mm. Like it, it, He's almost the most important yeah. person in it. And she received a lot of heat as the OC went on. I think her personal life might have overtaken oh, oh, her professional life. Um, I'm Barton. talking about Misha Barton. Misha Barton yep. But the way Misha Barton is presented in the... In the pilot is is quite. I mean, she's the she's the unattainable, yeah. the aloof, the the cool girl, the girl who belongs to this upper crust society, and Mish Barton is is really good. Yeah, she's yeah. I mean, that's something else. She's, it's, she's compelling. She's magnetic. Yeah, it, it's partly because she doesn't have too much to do. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's interesting. I mean, something that's interesting about it is that you know, obviously, all the actors are airbrushed, you know, good looking in a very airbrushed way, but they actually do have genuine charisma, and I mean. Ryan's probably the only one who doesn't have charisma, but he's so weird to look at that it substitutes for a charisma. He's doing like, something. He's doing something, yeah. I'm, I'm not sure he knows what it is it's, or it's we know what it is. maybe silent expressionist Yeah, exactly. Theater. It's like uh, he's Nick chan- Cage. He's channeling Nick Cage yeah, in some like ways. Yeah, it's like Nick Cage meets Charlie Chaplin. <laughs> it's a really weird... Yeah, but it's... It, it has it has so many of the features that Outer Banks does. You can see why it's kind of a predecessor. But as, some, and as somebody who had no particular investment in the series at the time, apart from being kind of surrounded by it in an ambient way, it is really refreshing just to see how how eloquent its sense of space is, how eloquent its characters are, and just kind of how fun it is to mm, watch. Definitely. Addictive. And it also gets that these characters can be douches in their own way as well, and that's part of the pleasure. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. And I think what's interesting watching it now, of course, is the, the period piece element of it as well. Absolutely. And it, the it music. Is a, oh, the music. The music is, yeah. is I think, the, the biggest signifier yep. that we yep. are we are in a very different era absolutely. right now. Absolutely, yeah. That, I suppose, how would you describe it? Alt-rock? Yeah, post-grunge. Post- the the <laughs> that, post-grunge that moment. Post. Yeah, yeah, that, the moment where, like, Grunge. Sort of the last gasp of rock. Yeah, exactly. As a, as a mainstream kind of. And I'm feeling like th- th- there are touches of new metal around the edges too. So like post post grunge with a kind of side serving of of white rap. And <laughs> yes, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> and it's, it's so well intertwined with this yeah. with these characters in this space. And, and a particular kind of like early two thousands mopiness. Yes, and, and yes. kind of but enjoyable. Mopiness. No, no, not, good not, mopiness. Not Instagram yeah. friendly mopiness. Yeah, yeah, exactly. This it's just, is a kind of cinematic mopiness. Yeah, and 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 the mopiness that comes from, and this is something we often talk about growing up in the nineties. That mopiness that comes from just sitting around the house all day with nothing to do and no interfaces onto the outside world. Yeah, so there's lots of scenes of gaming in there, this opening are, episode, are. which are quite fun. There are, yeah. And I think um, one thing that's quite notable is well, this was this pilot was directed by Doug Lyman, so yeah, it's got so, it's got a press that it's got yeah. a it's got some pedigree behind that's it. That's great, and we we've both said we think Doug Lyman is probably one of the most underrated genre directors right at the moment. So mm. Edge of Tomorrow, uh, The Wall, what else did he direct? Those mm. two are. Those two, yeah. I mean, those two, those are two of the best. Swingers. Oh, of course, swing. Yes, yeah. yes. That's that's isn't that an interesting transition? So mm. you have, you know, this director of one of the most notable indie films of the two th- of the nineties, you know, Vince Vaughn, John Favreau, Swingers, moving into the OC, and yeah, that's a really nice comparison because there is a wit to the way this is directed and a kind of panache to the way this is directed that makes it more than just your typical average, yeah, you know, teen soap. It's, it, 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 I'm also thinking it, it comes at the end 
of a great wave of teen soaps in the 90s like Melrose Place, Beverly Hills, Malibu Shores. <laughs> and it, it, it's aware of where it's come from, but it also adds a kind of witty signature all of its own. It does. And I, I remember watching this in the, in the 90s and we felt like, oh, this is quite, this is realistic. This yep. is a realistic. This is a real... This is how gritty, it is, man. <laughs> <laughs> it's a real gritty depiction of what it's like to be an adolescent. Yeah, yeah. And increasingly as time recedes, you realise yeah. that, that that is quite a, a fabrication. But... It's nonetheless an incredibly entertaining watch. Yeah, and, and funny how much the characters, when I look at them, the characters feel like the archetypes of what a man and a woman could be at that time. Like yeah. you, you're either a Ryan or a Seth, or like a. <laughs> That's true. A, you know, you're a, identified with a Misha or a. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, or if you're a young a young male, you were either a Marissa person or you yeah. were a Summer person. Yeah, well, some of us were one of the two. <laughs> some of us were a Ryan person or a Seth person. Or a Seth person, yeah, yeah, yeah. that's right. That's right. That smile, that damn smile. <laughs> And the tank, the tank top. Yep. Yeah, yeah. It's a very interesting and uh, historically interesting part of the period. I agree. <laughs> the costuming. You're really obsessed uh, with the the costuming. Yeah. The costuming was just was, fantastic. Yeah, yeah. 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 Excellent. Well, that, look, that concludes Archive Corner, and that concludes. This so I think we're episode. in. We're in on the OC. We're do- oh, yep, yeah. So I'm, I've already <laughs> you're, gone. You're double down. Yeah, I'm, I'm double down. I'll, I'll watch any kind of domestic drama or any sitcom, basically. And this says, you know, this isn't a sitcom, but it has that domestic focus. So. One final thing, we are saying how there's something so comforting about starting a long series. And although all the plot elements are set up from the beginning, inevitably the first couple of episodes are fairly low stakes. You just immerse Mm. yourself in the world and they're often Mm. quite episodic. Mm. There's something so comforting about just being at the beginning of that whole journey. Yeah, and I think you might have even pitched a project watching this to you to your partner and I think yeah so last time we, we watched this um with my my partner Kyle um and uh, Drew and I were watching it with Kyle and I, and I suggested tentatively to everybody we could spend the next six months watching every episode yeah um Drew and Kyle weren't on board with doing that <laughs> I've got a bit of a history of trying to watch well, 120 it. episodes one a week that yep would, exactly that would last approximately two and a half years that's a spin-off podcast OC club <laughs> after pilot club <laughs> and I'm very intrigued to see where it went in season three yeah post the post Misha era yeah exactly the the late style the late, the late style OC. <laughs> the, OC, the late the later years it would, it would no doubt be a project but possibly an independent passion project. yeah I might I might I might do that one solo <laughs> excellent well that's been a second episode of pilot club I'm Billy I'm Drew. And that was Pilot Club. See you next week.